I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. This is Theology Unplugged. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm doing great. We are sitting in the middle of the Credo House, and we have two special guests. And this has been, I think, Michael, this has been kind of a dream day for you and I. We've been tweeting each other, saying, can you believe this is happening at the Credo House right now? And so we are excited and blessed to have our two guests. Well, we've got Theology Unplugged. Theology Unplugged has been going on since 2005, or I think maybe we started 2006 with our first broadcast, but... At the same time, we started a, a broadcast called Converse with Scholars. Now, that was kind of my deal. I'm, uh, you know me in hero worship. Yes, uh, it's uh, uh, kind of embarrassing. Yeah, I will not show you my uh, underwear, but uh, <laughs> you know, they, they've got superheroes on them, all right? Was that too much? Yes, yes, but let's see if we can redeem the broadcast. Go ahead. Can we edit going. that out? Uh, probably. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but... Uh, uh, one of the things that uh, I really wanted to do with the Converse with Scholars was to introduce people to people that we say, gosh, you know, the, these should be our heroes. These are the people that everybody should know. These are the people that are really making a difference for Christ. And, you know, just uh, what God has uh, instilled within me was uh, this idea. Let, let's just introduce people to scholars that they may not have the opportunity otherwise to get, ever get introduced to. So then birth Converse with Scholars. Yes. Today, we are doing Converse with Scholars from Credo House, live from Credo House. Since we started Converse with Scholars here at Credo House, we've had many guests. Every time we have a, a quarterly um, uh, function here, that we bring in our, our particular scholar, I think last time. Who was it last time? I believe Paul. Uh, Greg, Greg Kokel, I believe. Oh, yeah, Greg Kokel, then yeah. Paul Copan, Dan Wallace before that. And I think we have Dan coming uh, in April. Again. Yes, he's coming to discuss one of the huge archaeological finds of the last couple of years. Well, so. no, 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 no. Don't go there. Okay. Yeah, we're not, we're not sure. We'll, we'll be teasing that. He, okay. he is talking about the history of the Bible. That's all we'll go into right now. Okay. <laughs> but today we've got uh, a couple of uh, people who are very special to us because, Tim, you were a historic theology major at Dallas Theological Seminary, correct? That's right. I didn't go to Dallas Seminary to study historical theology, but after I took my first historical theology class— With I, who? Uh, it was with uh, Dr. John Hanna. Uh, then Dr. Jeffrey Bingham as well was a very influential professor. But after I took the two of them, I, I realized that this is so eminently practical and, and is so needed and so missed. I didn't become a believer until college. I knew no Christians until I first started reading about people who believed before I did. And so church history was a very influential thing for me and continues to be. And so uh, these two people are heroes of mine. The primary textbook that we used in seminary, a lot of people that go to seminary, I, I don't know of many people that don't use this textbook, but it is called The Story of Christianity, Justo Gonzalez. And we also have a book in front of us called Heretics for Armchair Theologians, in which we have Catherine Gonzalez as well that is joining us, who is also, some people may not know this, but she is also a historic theology professor, was, both of them retired. And um, so, so the two historic theology professors married each other. Their first conversation, I'll let them talk about it more, but it's just so much fun. <laughs> isn't it? I'll just tell their whole story. One of these times, we'll, we'll let them uh, talk. But, uh, but this is not one of those times, right? Yeah, yeah. No. So we have got uh, Houston Gonzalez and Catherine Gonzalez. Thank you for joining us. 
Well, yeah. I was brought here under false pretenses. Yeah, what was that? <laughs> I didn't know you wanted heroes. If I know you were the heroes, I wouldn't have shown up. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have to do that because all of our heroes don't want to beat our heroes, but they are yeah. nonetheless. And that is one of the reasons why they're our heroes is because they're not seeking to be. We have um, uh, them both here. Uh, Hugh Stowe tonight is going to be talking about um, uh, heretics and how heresy has helped the church. But today... We are going to talk to you guys, and I, I told you just a little bit ago, think of this in such a way that we are having an office visit with you, okay? Tim and I, both historic theology nuts, and we want to have an office visit with... With two, two other nuts. Yeah, two other nuts. There you go. There you go. And so we want to talk some historic theology. Again, let me, let me briefly let our audience in again to this book. It's Heretics for Armchair Theologians. WJK put this out. It is uh, a recent uh, publication, I believe. How, how recent was this, y'all? I don't know, it was three, three or four years ago. Three years ago. I don't remember. Okay. First edition yeah. uh, looks like it was 2008. So it yeah. uh, comes from a series of armchair theologian series. Is that the only ones you all contribute That's to right. in the series? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Well, it is so good to have yeah. you all here. And, and, and we need to say we, we were asked to do it. We did not volunteer. No, no. And we still wonder why they wanted us to do the one on heretics, but that's it. <laughs> I don't really wonder, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, so, Tim, we're gonna, I'm just going to open up, and if you do, don't jump in, okay, hey, you're going to be silent the whole uh, time no, because I'm I've got so much hey, to talk about. I'm so ready to jump in. Here, I will jump in. Wait, 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 wait. No, okay. Don't jump in yet. I didn't okay. say jump in now. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, you got to – this is – Man, I, I want this broadcast to last like 45 hours or Okay, so. okay, but let, let's start with this, all right? Can we bridge for our current audience, because we're right in the middle of a Catholic series yes. explaining Roman Catholicism. Let, let's try to find some way to bridge that as well. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah? How do we bridge it? Last time we talked about purgatory, right? Yes. Okay, let's, I want to start there um, with you all. We talked, whenever we were doing the broadcast, me, Tim, Sam Storms, and JJ, and we talked about the history of purgatory mm -hmm. and really tried to figure out one of the things that we were discussing as Protestants who do, don't necessarily believe in purgatory. Um, we were trying to figure out where this became a part of the church history and why it got its tentacles so deep to where it's part of 1.2 billion professing Christians' dogmatized theology. Where did it start? I mean, is this something that we can find deep in church history, or is this mm -hmm. something that developed later on? Well, there was, a, in the early church, there were different theological styles, different approaches to the gospel. One approach, which was not the oldest, but is the one that has become dominant in the whole Western tradition, is uh, an approach that's very much based on law as its main category. God is the lawgiver. God is the judge. Sin is breaking the law. Uh, redemption is somehow paying for the sin. Somebody has to pay. Therefore, Jesus pays. And in, that's common of Catholic and Protestants together. This we are all in the same boat. There's other traditions, very different traditions in the Eastern Church. But that somehow disappeared very soon. By the time St. Augustine comes around, the Western Church, which at that point is mostly, the theologians are mostly North African. That's something else we usually don't realize, that the, the great theologians of the Latin Church, except for Ambrose, uh, uh, until the time of, uh, fairly late, were all North Africans. But 
By the time that Augustine comes around, that is the main framework. So even though Augustine, for instance, emphasizes grace, what grace does is that it gives us the power to do the things that we are supposed to do in order to fulfill the purpose of God and therefore to be saved. So you, you're saved by grace, but by works. Uh, that that of situation means that immediately questions begin arising as to what happens with people who have not paid, people who still owe, and so on. And Augustine, almost in passing, says, perhaps there's a place. And that's one of the very earliest mentions of something like the purgatory. Mm -hmm. A few centuries later, Gregory the Great, who was one of the greatest popes ever, but who also lived at a time of uh, serious difficulties, obscurantism and you know, disorder and so on, he takes what Augustine has said and practically makes it a, an assertion. And from then on, the, quest, the issue of purgatory becomes quite common in the entire Western church. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's very clear. Anyone who is in purgatory is going to go to heaven. I mean, that's, it's not a place of a second chance. If you're going to go to hell, you go direct. <laughs> you don't. You don't pass go. You don't. Yeah, you don't pass go. Uh, but the sense that even if your sins are forgiven, there may be a physical punishment that is still necessary in order to fulfill the obligation. And and so purgatory is a place of purging. And and the one thing I think that Protestants can can ask the question about uh, is if. If nothing happens to us at the point of our death, even if we are believers and we go to heaven, something had better change. Otherwise, we will make heaven into another place just like this. So somehow there has to be a perfecting. And purgatory was one way of saying, you can't enter heaven until you are indeed righteous. So you don't mess it up again. Now, purgatory does that. Our theology doesn't have anything that says exactly how that process occurs. Does it at the moment of death, if you enter the kingdom, are you suddenly perfected so that there is no, you have no desire to sin? That would mean a, quite a transformation beyond anything that we have experienced thus far. I mean, so, so I think purgatory partly answers that question. The text that was used, and I think it was used even in Tertullian. I'm trying, yes, I told think you there was that. some of it before, yeah. before Augustine was, and I'm, I can't think where in Paul, when he says someone, he will be saved, but only as through fire. Yeah, that's the first Corinthians. And so that's, and that becomes the passage that becomes, in a sense, the proof text for, for purgatory. Mm -hmm. But I think it, even if you don't believe in purgatory, even if you don't believe that every sin requires a certain amount of physical punishment, the question still is there of how do even believers who are not sinless or perfect what happens to them and how does that happen and is it instantaneous mm. so that when you are part of the kingdom you don't mess it up mm -hmm. and I think and that's, we all have to basically no matter what theology you hold to you have to have some type of purging you have to have something that changes people so that that heaven is heaven 
Yeah, we are more pure when we have, uh, from a Catholic theology, the beatific vision. We are more pure at that standpoint than we are today. What transpires from Catholic standpoint, it could be this time or timeless purgatory. From our standpoint, yeah. it's a mystery. Yes, that's right. Mm. But I think they were trying to fill in the gaps yeah. in a highly legalistic system. Mm -hmm. And then it became dogmatized yeah. after a while mm -hmm. because tradition mm -hmm. eventually does take mm -hmm. on that role, huh? Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Tim? Good stuff. Hey, Good stuff. <clears throat> audience, you guys, if you, you have any follow-up questions, you raise your hand. I'm not saying we'll call on you, but I, I will acknowledge your <laughs> hand. At least being acknowledge raised. you're here. Uh, can we zoom out a little bit? A lot of people have read your the story of Christianity, and uh, I was telling you after we picked you up from the airport that uh, after I read it in seminary, I quickly, I think I was home for Christmas, I gave it to my mother, and she she read it without a college degree or background, gave it to my father, a farmer without a college background. He read it, loved it. Uh, then it went to my wife, and she read both volumes, and then she sent it to her sister, who read both volumes. And the, then The bandit must have been very good. Uh, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. It's well-worn. I have it in my hands right here. It, uh, I actually got it back. Um, but as I was talking to you, you you said, well, that makes sense because of, of why I wrote it and who I wrote it for. And, uh, and then the story you told I found fascinating for people who read it. Michael and I both recommend this as one of the ten books every Christian should own, should have on their shelf, but actually have in their minds and actually have read. Uh, so give us a little bit of background, if you would, on th these two volumes and how they came about? Well, uh, obviously they came out of my passion for church history, and that's another issue to discuss at some point. But uh, well, Which the point will be next. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, they came out of a burden that I felt traveling particularly through Latin America, where there's a great revival going on. I mean, the, the growth of uh, Protestant and evangelical churches in Latin America is just incredible. And yet, precisely because of that growth, uh, most of the pastors and leaders have very little education, very little studies. The churches don't require them to do much before they are ordained. Many of them are just self-proclaimed, and, and they're doing fantastic work, but very often they have no idea what's about all these things. And I thought that they, they could profit from knowing something of the history of how they got to where they were, so they could understand themselves better, so they could serve better. But at the same time, Nobody's going to tell them they have to read this stuff. I mean, you read that book because you were told it's cool to read it. Perhaps you like it, that's another matter, but you were told to read it. Uh, these people, nobody was telling them what, what to read. And so I figured I have to write something that, uh, well, the image I had was that this pastor who's very tired goes to bed and picks up a book and starts reading it and can't put it down that it would be like a novel that somebody's reading and you get to the point that it, and you have to just keep on going. So that was the idea originally. And originally, precisely because many of these people have very little salaries, if any, it was published in the form of small books that they could buy one at a time. Mm. Obviously, when there got to be 10 of them, then it became cheaper to put it all in ones and rather than have people spend time buying all the all their money buying these little ones. And it was but in Spanish that you wrote it. It was originally. in Spanish originally. It was yes. originally in Spanish. Almost immediately in Portuguese. Almost immediately in Portuguese. And then it's been translated in other languages and so on. But but uh, then then I think after Portuguese was English. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me tell you a story about that. That I just had nothing. I don't know how profound this is. But some years ago, Catherine had a student who liked to play jokes over the phone and and 
act like he was somebody else and so on. Especially with accents. Especially with accents. <laughs> he played accents. And one day I got this call and says, Hello, Mr. Gonzalez. This is so-and-so Vlosky from uh, St. Petersburg. And I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and he kept on talking. And, and after about 10, 15 minutes of being very cold and very impolite to him, I realized the guy was real. <laughs> he wanted to translate this book, and so I had to, I had to backtrack quite a bit. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, tell us a little bit, again, backing up some about you two, how you met, and you're both church history professors. Tell us about the first conversation you guys had as well. Well, uh, our meeting, I let Catherine tell that. But anyhow, uh, the first conversation we had was about Irenaeus. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's that? Arrhenius was a theologian, a, a, a man who had grown up in Smyrna, the same city that appears in the book of Revelation, you know, Smyrna, in, in what now is Turkey. Uh, but for some reason, well, he had been a disciple of a disciple of John. So he was very close to the apostolic tradition. And for some reason, it's not clear exactly why he and many other people moved to what is now France, the south of France. And uh, he wrote uh, several books, but two of them are existent. And I like Arrhenius precisely because he offers a different perspective on Christianity than that North African perspective that I was telling about that's very legalistic. And uh, I found him fascinating for that reason. Mm-hmm. And when we met, I discovered that uh, Catherine also uh, was fascinated by Arrhenius. And so you met, hi. My name. You you are also named Gonzalez. That's right. Yes. Uh, Main name. We met at the Faith and Order Commission of the National Council of Churches, where I was uh, representing the Presbyterian Church, and he was representing the Methodist Church. And what year was this? This was 1973. And the year after I was born. <laughs> Don't rub it in. <laughs> I was negative five. Let's just say. <laughs> and. Um, we were waiting for the bus to take us up to the conference center up on the Hudson, and uh, Nunn, who was the vice chair of the commission, uh, saw me come in, and she came over and said, I knew her, and she said, come over and sit at our table. And so I went over, and she was introducing me to all the people at the table, and then all of a sudden got to the last one who jumped to his feet, and she said, this is Dr. Husso Gonzalez, who teaches church history at Emory University. And then she started to laugh. And she said to him, this is Dr. Catherine Gonzalez, who teaches church history at Louisville Presbyterian Seminary. And so he said, how did you get that name? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it was my father's. <laughs> but it's totally anglicized. And so then he later said he had to marry me to get me to spell it properly. But <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I pronounce both of them the same way. So, so how did your converse, conversation then turn to Irenaeus? It was on the bus, uh, going up to Stony Point, and it it really was. Uh, you have to realize I was one of the few women teaching in a Protestant seminary, in something other than Christian education. He was the only Latin American teaching on a tenure track or with tenure, in in any seminary in the country. I mean, so that we both had the experience of being extreme minorities in the fields in which we were. Or pioneers. Yeah, but extreme minority was more the way you felt it. And and at that point... A pioneer knows somebody's going to (laughs) follow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's good. And for us, the sense of history 
even though history does not include in church history a whole lot of Latin Americans or a whole lot of women, it still was the place where we found our validation. I mean, so that, and Irenaeus was a, a really, above all, the one where we found a, a sense of echo of, of what we thought we were doing. Wow. So, so we had a great deal in common. Hmm. As a total side thing, uh, Catherine, who is your most favorite female theologian in church history? <laughs> Dame Julian. <laughs> Dame Julian? Dame Julian of Norwich, uh, who was a 15th, 15th century um, a hermit. You, well, she was an anchoress. You, it's, it's very different. She wrote one book, but which is very important. Yeah. Your book uh, obviously is used quite a bit uh, in seminaries. If you were to recommend and you say, what's your favorite book outside of your own, outside of your husband's, your favorite book, general book on church history that is out there that you feel like has done well, that is a comprehensive, one of the comprehensive models, not just a specific period, you know, but uh, some of those that are out there that are, that are more comprehensive, which ones do you all turn to first? I don't know. I don't know, because I was used to a very dry textbooks mm. in church history. Um, history of doctrine would be more. Uh, Pelican is extremely detailed, yeah. so not for really a general audience. I'm not sure what, in terms of a general survey. Yeah, it depends on what you're, what you're looking at. I think History, that, uh, not doctrine, history. I don't know. I don't know. You've because done a history of doctrine and a history of Christianity. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Three volumes and, on the history of doctrine. And, and, then, and the real field of study yeah. was the history of doctrine. So okay. was mine. I did the not church, church history, history simply was... because, uh, no, as, as, a, as something else to, to bring doctrine to life. Okay. Because I've I think got... part of the problem is we study... A doctrine too often as it had nothing to do with life and concrete situations and context and so on. So that's why I did the other one. But my real field is history of doctrine. In that field, I think uh, uh, Pelicans is, uh, is unparalleled. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very, very thorough piece of work. On church history, it's much more difficult to know because uh, there are several out there that are very good, but they are compilations of articles, I mean, chapters by different people. And those have the problem of any such book, they are uneven. And very often they don't match. I mean, they, one doesn't match with the other one. Uh, the other one begins. And some of those are the best. But they're not the kind of thing you want to read as a whole survey or as, yeah, a, as a, yeah. from one end to the other. Get, so. Well, I think more of the, some of the more popular ones throughout church history, of course, Philip Schaff is one of them. Yeah. There's the yeah. 10 yeah. or 12 volumes. Yeah, but those are the much Schaff, older. Yeah. yeah. Much older. The two books that were circulating when I was a student were uh, Walker and Latourette. Yeah, I used Walker. And uh, they were both, they're both very good, but they're both very dry. They want to put so many, so much data in it Hmm. that uh, uh, it becomes a a list of names and dates and so on. And and it's difficult to to follow the story. in the midst of, of, of that. So uh, I think they were very good for their time. They're still very good as, as, as books to look at and to find out various items, uh, but they're not books we just read through. I want to, in our next broadcast, I want to talk about uh, the history of doctrine, development of doctrine. Tim, we're about out of time for this broadcast, but let me, let me end with this, uh, pulling back towards the Roman Catholic stuff that we were talking about earlier. I think it was um, uh, Henry Newman, John Henry Newman, 
I think, uh, that said, to be deeply immersed in history is to cease to be Protestant. You ever heard that quote? I can understand how he made it. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure that was he, but go ahead. Go ahead. Okay, <laughs> it's, it's one of those guys. I, I think he was an Anglican, converted to Roman Catholic later on. Um, Dr. Wrote, Gonzalez is being polite he, wrote by the, not telling you that you're wrong. Wrote <laughs> the essays on uh, the do, history of the doctrine of develop, development. Yes. I yeah. think that was him. But anyway, yes, either did. way, there, there is that kind of common sediment that we, I have to, whenever I'm talking to people, the assumption among Protestants, number one, is that Protestants know nothing of church history. Uh, and number two, if we did know something of church history, we would cease to be Protestant. Now, obviously, neither one of no. you all are no. uh, Roman Catholics no. or converted to Roman Catholicism. But, but uh, help me with that idea. Is I, that true? I, I think no. there's a sense that for a lot of Protestants, the church begins in the 16th century, hmm. if not the 19th. I mean, <laughs> sometimes it's even less than that. Or yesterday. Yeah. That, uh, that they don't consider, that you sort of go straight from the New Testament to the Protestant Reformation, and that that history in between is not your history. Mm-hmm. Well, it is our history. Yeah. I mean, if we'd been born in the 13th century, we would have been Roman Catholics. I mean, that's, it is our history. It's the history of our church. The Roman Catholic Church cannot claim sole ownership of the first 15 centuries. It is our history. And we take different parts of it. We discard different parts of it. But it is our history. And I think for a lot of Protestants, that is not true. Hmm. But I think you remain a Protestant. But it is our history. And, I, and, and you have a lot of trouble sometimes with students wondering, why on earth are we going through all this time that's really Catholic history? It's not our history, but yeah. it is our history. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's our family heritage. That's and, right. And just because exactly we've right. got some past that we're not quite so proud of or just because we you got done some, things differently. Some crazy uncles. Yeah, but you have some, sane, you have some sane ones. That's there right. There must have been some sane ones back there in 15 centuries. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, like you said just a moment ago about St. Augustine, and you said one of the things that he introduced and that he yeah. held on to was the idea that salvation was by grace, but awesome. the grace helps you to work your salvation yeah. out. And, and so then all of a sudden we as Protestants normally say it's all or nothing. If you don't have 100% Protestant doctrine, then you're not one That's of right. us. Well, uh, the problem is... You know, the, you have written there on the wall the famous uh, canon that St. Vincent, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, not St. Vincent, I mean, Vincent de Lorenz uh, uh, offered about uh, you only have to believe what you always believe and by everybody and everywhere. <laughs> well, as, as a short historian, if you say that, you're not going to believe much mm. because you are going to find out that there's somebody, someplace, uh, at some time who has not believed exactly the same thing. And I think in, in that sense, church history makes me even more of a Protestant mm. because it makes me doubt more uh, some of the ways in which uh, uh, the Roman Catholic Church has defined uh, the doctrine. It mm. uh, doesn't mean that I am any, uh, that I am sure that mine is a correct doctrine, but I certainly know that there is a, a plurality of ways of looking at the gospel that goes far beyond uh, the, the what we have been told either as brothers or as Catholics. And that kind of fits in with the reformers' idea of the church should be always reforming, reforming. as well, right. I think. Right, yeah. But we are always the church, though, too. Mm-hmm. That's right, mm-hmm. that's right. And the church is always the church by the grace of God. The church is not the church because it has the right doctrine. The church is the church because it has the right Lord. 
and very often we confuse those two. Hmm. I'm, I'm uh, tweeting that right now. <laughs> I'm not tweeting it because I don't like it, and i got to talk to him about it next time. <laughs> um, we'll continue this on next time, folks. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we've, we've had the pleasure of having both the doctors, Gonzalez, uh, Miss Gonzalez and Mr. Gonzalez. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll pick this up right next time, Tim. Correct, yeah. and you have something to say. Yes, I just have one quick, so we can't fit in this broadcast, but we're going to move just a quick response into our members area. And so if you on our website, reclaimingthemind.org, uh, look at the members area on the right side for this quick answer that we couldn't, or for the answer that we couldn't fit in. Uh, but I'm going to ask the question, uh, then uh, in the members area it will be answered. But uh, Dr. Catherine... You're just really, ripping people off right now, aren't you? No, Everybody's it's, listening, yeah, and now they no, have to become so members I want the, to hear this. Well, it's, it's free. You can sign up for free to be a member and everything uh, but uh, Dr. Catherine loves to cook and uh, and is a good cook I, I'm sure and so if you are having a wonderful meal with your husband but you have the opportunity to invite three people from church history to sit at the table with you which three that you would both have to agree would you invite and you only had time because they were coming from heaven and they don't want to be gone for long you only have time to introduce one topic that you will all be able to discuss for an hour who are the people and what is the topic God, three people with one topic that's unfair. three people Why not one person one topic that's the question all right and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll answer it online and then we'll <laughs> bring up the broadcast next week on doctrine all right we'll see you online or we will see you next week